Introverts at the second service at the middle. That's the shortest meet and greet ever. Everybody sat down like y'all were tired with y'all neighbors. That's good. I like that. I thought y'all be feeling good. Everybody won yesterday. Everybody feeling good? I know for some of y'all this looks like garnet. For others of y'all this looks like purple. We'll, we'll, we'll. Next week, it'll be purple. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Great to have y'all here this morning. We're in a series. On a much more serious note, we're calling it uh, Multiply You. Really what we're doing is working through a book in the Bible called 2 Timothy. It's a letter written from a guy named Paul to a son in Christ, if you, if you will. Like, this is a guy that he's, he's spent a bunch of time with and passed along his, not only his relationship with Jesus, but the teachings of Jesus. And so Timothy's growing up under Paul, and this is really one of the very last things that, that Paul's going to write in his lifetime. So he writes this letter to a young man named Timothy, passing along to him the good news about Jesus, but also he's coaching him up on how to take this good news to others. If you were here last week, we spent some time working through these last words as he tries to take this precious gift that he's been given from God and give it to the next guy, which is what we encourage one another to do as we leave this room and go back out into the world where we live is to take this good news that we've been trusted with and give it to the next guy. Let me pray and we'll look at the passage. We'll let it speak to us this morning. As this last service, Lord, I ask it again. Would you please, with your spirit, speak into our room? Speak to us as individuals, but speak to us as a group. We pray, Lord, that this morning would have a spiritual quality to it. This wouldn't just be some box that we've checked. We wouldn't uh, just enjoy being together, but there would be this true community built around your work in the room. Please, please take your words that you had written, Lord, and speak them. Overcome my deficiencies and speak to our hearts. We pray in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Second Timothy, this is chapter 2, verse 14, reads like this. Remind everyone about these things. So you got a picture in your mind, an older guy speaking to a younger guy. There's a, a deep relationship between them. Paul's giving much to, much to Timothy, but he's giving him counsel. Here we go. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless, and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Kind of famous verse. That, that little line, verse 15, I don't know if you picked up on it. He says to the younger man, some of the older guys in the room, you ever said, said this out of your mouth, work hard. Anybody? Generationally, we always think the generation behind us is lazy. It's just the way it is, Generation Z, I'm sorry. The millennials are going to think you're lazy, which is hilarious to Generation <laughs> X, right? Like which is hilarious still to the boomers who looked at us. And certainly anybody above boomer, you're like, ain't none of y'all know how to work, right? Like, like, what does it look like to work hard? I love that because last week, if you remember, Paul speaking to this younger man, what does he say? Be strong. I have yelled that from stands for years, like be strong. When my kids are playing, usually on offense, I want to be strong. On defense, however, I got this line. It's, it's, it's not very complimentary. Work! 
Work, because on defense, you don't have to be that smart. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be. You got, you got to work. You got to put. So, so he's telling this younger man, like, like work hard. Let's go. This is important. I, I, I love the uh, athletic analogies because you really, you can feel in, in our society where that's so important to us. Athletics are so important to us. And so we've got these, say, Paul's saying this about the most important subject. He's got this mission that he's been given by God Almighty. He's got this precious news that he's trusted with, and he's got to get it to Timothy, and Timothy's got to carry it out. So he wants him to be strong, and this week, he wants him to work hard. It's really cool because right away in the passage, he explains how to work hard. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. So some of y'all that know me for a while, you've heard this story, but we're moving back to South Carolina from Texas, and uh, we move our own stuff, right, because that's the cheaper way to go. And I was on my second Penske truck, and just for the record, I'm not near as happy on the second truck as I am on the first truck, or maybe a little grumpy on the second truck. And I'd already sent all the kids to South Carolina. We were in Texas, and me and Isaiah, my oldest, he's 18, we were left to fill a 26-foot Penske truck all by ourselves. So what I told him was, I like, invite all your basketball buddies. He played high school basketball, so he invited the whole team over to help us move. I bought pizza and drinks, set them all up in the kitchen, and I got about 30 minutes work out of the, those rascals, right? Like, <laughs> like, I still remember. We're walking through the kitchen. For some reason, this is embedded in my mind. And Isaiah and I are on a couch. I'm the old guy, right, in the room, and there's this whole team sitting at my table eating my pizza, drinking my sodas, like, like while I'm carrying the couch out of, out of the house. It's just like, I'm like, are y'all not ashamed of this moment? Like, like and Isaiah's like, Dad, like, Isaiah's feeling the tension. He's feeling me about to pop. Like, he's, he knows this is about to go down. So Isaiah's literally running as fast as he can because he doesn't want me to go off on his friends, right? Like, so he's, he's covering for him. We work. He and I are soaking wet. We fill that truck. I am so annoyed with the lack of work ethic. The way I remember it, which I'm sure is exaggerated, I left them in the house with the pizza and we drove off of the, I'm pretty sure that's not how it went, but that's all I can remember of them, is eating my pizza. We got in the car, I got on the cell phone, I was mad. I don't know how husbands and wives do this in, in, in your life, but in my life, usually if I want to vent, Cheryl gets to hear it first, which is not always a privilege. But I'm like, you would not believe what just happened. And I went on and on, and then Isaiah got in the Penske, and we drove from Texas to South Carolina, 15 hours. We roll into this new place where we were going to live, and I'm backing up the truck. And as I'm backing up the truck, all of my sons are outside. I mean, not like the Von Trapp family, you know, standing like this. Like, 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 but, but they're out there, and Cheryl's been telling them about what I said on the phone. So they, they've heard it. So they're out there in my yard, and we, we pull, you know how the Penske trucks are, you, you pull the ramp down, we locked it in, and I got little boys. Like, like Isaiah was 18, so the, the youngest was 18, seven. He was seven. They are running up and down that ramp, grabbing stuff and running in the house. 90 minutes later, I ain't lying, 90, I remember, 90 minutes later, unloaded in the house, Penske truck, we on the way back, and I'm like... Yes, that's my family. That's my people. They know how to work hard. Something's worked around here. I cannot tell you how it felt from my side, but I don't know if it bugs you that my approval drove my kids. I want to just encourage the parents in the room. It's a beautiful thing. That means you've loved them and you've shown them expectations and they're proud of their work. 
so at the end of it, like it was like this family celebration. This is what we do. We moved a lot, so we did that. But like we did it, and they had heard me fussing about these older kids and my seven-year-old, my nine-year-old, my 13-year-old. Like, my high school boys ain't got nothing on me, right? Like there's this pride that's healthy. It was, it was just Reeves' pride in that moment. It was, hard, it was hard work. They worked hard. Something that is slipping a little bit in our culture is that when you say work hard, it's almost offensive. It, however, can be just this, this statement that is filled with joy. For those of you who have learned to work, and, and, and for many have worked years and years and years, and sometimes it's not even fun, but there's this pride, this healthy pride that goes along with it because there's something to be accomplished and you stayed with it so you can go to bed at night. Apostle Paul says to this young man, hey, work hard at this day. It's interesting that he says work hard for approval, isn't it? So he actually thinks that Timothy would be motivated by his relationship with God the Father to work hard because he knows the Father, because he responds to who the Father is. He knows that he loves him, and he knows that he has expectations. Jesus told a parable. Some of you know your Bible. Well, you remember it. He tells this story to illustrate this point, and he, he has three, three servants that are serving one landowner. And the servants all got trusted with a certain amount of money when the landowner went out of town. You remember the story? He gives one of them five portions of money, the other one two portions of money, and the third one one. Anybody remember this? And so what's the dude with five do? He invested. He works it. We don't know what he did, if he grew corn, right, or, or, or if he, he built a computer. We don't, well, pretty curious when the computer, right? But he, he did something. He invested. And when the landowner came back, what's he come back with? Ten. He's multiplied you. He's multiplied the five things of money they was trusted with. I always picture him with ten wheelbarrows, rolling them up to the master, right? And it's not even about the, the multiplication of the resources. It's that he knows the master. And when he comes up to the landowner and the landowner looks at him and says, I'm proud of you, the, like the servant is just like, yes. And the guy with two, what's he do? Does the exact same thing. Turns the two into four. You can imagine those four wheelbarrows rolling up to the master. It's interesting that he's not frustrated with the guy who got five and made it ten. Like, he's just about his two, and he's going to multiply it, and he wants the master to see it, and he knows how the master's going to respond, doesn't he? He knows what the master wanted, and he knows that the master loves him, so he wants to please him, and there's like this party. What about the one? The one doesn't know the master, does he? He takes the gift that he's been given. He buries it in the ground. I, you always wonder, is he hoping that the master doesn't ever come back so he can just take what he was given? I don't know. Or is he just scared? He says at the end that he's scared, that he thinks that the master's a taskmaster, that he's going to take from him even what he doesn't deserve, so he buries it just to be on the safe side. We're not sure if that's true or not. That's the way the story goes. Guess what? He doesn't know the master. He doesn't, he doesn't really understand how to get the approval of the master, and so he just misses out. And in the end, Jesus says, this guy, man, he, it's not going to end well for him because he didn't know who God was. That's the passage where Jesus says to these servants via the master, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You feel the approval? that drives this thing called hard work, this approval that comes 
from God himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I don't know if you know how your Bible works. We're in 2 Timothy. That seems kind of wacky, like you got a first second, a first Timothy and a second Timothy. So there's two letters written to Timothy. There's a first Corinthians and a second Corinthians. So there's two letters written to this church in a town called Corinth. In this particular verse, this is what he says. He says, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, he's pointing back to a different passage. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What's he mean? <laughs> as excited as you are, perhaps, about meeting Jesus, like you can't get there. Your eyes can't comprehend it. Your ears can't comprehend it. Your deepest imagination can't get it. The best sci-fi representation can't get there. Nothing can get there. You can't imagine what it's going to be like when you meet Jesus. And so work hard looking forward to that day of approval when you meet the master. It's a beautiful passage. And so then in 2 Timothy, he actually unpacks it. He helps us understand it. He says, uh, work hard, and then in the second part of the verse, be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Some of y'all have heard this passage. People love this passage often. He says, like, if you want to work hard, if you're going to be a good worker and never be ashamed for your work, make sure you can correctly explain the word of truth. Another translation says, accurately handle. I like that when you think of the Bible as the sword, like accurately handle it. But the actual translation, of the, the closest rendering is to cut straight. It's, it's to cut straight. Me and Cleet both built our decks. We're really proud of some of our deck work. But we, when, when somebody who came along who knew how to do it, Cleet and I had to measure twice put the speed square on it, cut it. And if your cleat's got to cut it perfect because he can't live without it being perfect. So it takes a long time. I, I worked hard to get it because I had to report to Cheryl. So mine had to be straight, right? But when you see somebody who knows what they're doing, they come out there with the, the doggone skill saw and they somehow they cut, they mark it once and they cut it straight. You know why? Because they've been handling this thing for years and years and years. It's comfortable in their hand and they take the circular saw and they cut a straight line. I'm like, how did you do that? Because of multiple, multiple times of use so they, they know how to handle it. So they cut straight with the Word of God. A lot of folks think that Paul is referring to, he was a tent maker. I don't know if you guys know this. Paul wasn't, he was in ministry full time, but he worked another job on the side, right? That's how he paid the bill. He made tents. And so some folks actually imagine him cutting the fabric to make the tents, and he had to cut it straight to make sure it all held together and will be supported and healthy. If you don't cut the board straight, if you don't cut the fabric straight for the tent, then it gets all wonky and crooked, and, and eventually that thing just looks jacked up or doesn't hold up. And so he's telling this younger man, hey, when you handle the Word of God, cut straight with it. So I would just, man, if I could encourage you, younger folks in the room, older folks in the room, if you haven't spent much time in God's Word, today's a great day to start. Like, it just takes reps. You got to do the time in order to cut straight, which takes really uh, not just days. It takes years. And, and then over a little course of time, here's what's really cool. If you've never read the Bible before, I'm confident that you could read it tonight, and it could be a lie for you, even though you've never read it before. Like, and I, I would encourage you to start in the book of Mark or the book of John. Just read one chapter. And here's what I'd like you to do when you start. 
God, would you pre- please bring this to life for me? Here's what's interesting, the way the Bible works. It doesn't work like Gone with the Wind, right? Like you read Gone with the Wind like three times, it's, it's old. I, I didn't read it once, so like it got old before I started. Right? Like, like it, it, ain't, it ain't like Shakespeare, even though there's magic in his poetry and, and it's world famous. It, it's got this life to it of its own. So when you read it, it actually, if you will allow it, it'll read you. And that's got to be the attitude. Even if it's your very first time interacting with the Bible, come in there and go, I'm going to let it read me. God, I'm going to humbly put myself before Mark chapter 1. Would you say something to me from it as opposed to trying to conquer it like a physics book? And then whether you're brand new at this or whether you've done it for a lifetime, like the longer you do it, the better you get with handling it. And you just can cut straight. But even if it's your very first time, trust me, that thing can be alive. And if you need somebody, somebody right on your row would take time out of their week to help you walk through that and learn how to use it. Paul's saying to Timothy, this is super important. Learn to cut straight. It will uh, impact all the people around that you're leading, but it will impact your own soul. So he's, he's uh, this, this great encouragement. Uh, Joshua, an Old Testament book, when there's only... Uh, the first five books of the Bible in existence, Joshua is, it, it, is right. Study this book of instruction continually. I love this line. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. So evidently, this book, the Bible, I hold mine up on a piece of paper. <laughs> I can't read my Bible anymore without glasses, and I'm too proud to wear glasses yet. So give me a couple more years. All right, so like I print on, it's at 16, I can read that. But, but like, uh, like, evidently, learning how to handle this thing changes everything. And so Paul's telling Timothy, learn how to handle this thing. But look at where it is in the context. As soon as he gives this big encouragement of, of handling the word well, he, it comes verse 16, which says, avoid worthless, foolish talk that leads to more godless behavior. And read the verse before it. Remind everything about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. So he's telling us to know the words, but to stop fighting over the words. He says such arguments are useless, and they can ruin those who hear them. That's strong talk. So get to know it, be able to handle it, be able to cut straight with it, but stop arguing about it. In my mind, because I I use a few less words (laughs) sometimes, I'm like, and he's just saying, hey, stop talking so much. Y'all talk so much. He actually says that the way y'all talk about this book, fighting over the words, is ruining folks. Those strong words. I really feel, for those of y'all that are like kind of veteran believers, you've been following Jesus for a while. I'd like to speak to you for a little bit. Those of y'all that are brand new, this might go like this over your head, which is fine. I'll come back to you in just a minute. If you're a veteran believer, I really believe Paul in this passage is saying, rather than living sacrificially and making disciples, y'all prefer to argue about words. So you just like talking. We eventually prefer to make disciples, and we like to make disciples that agree with us in our secondary opinions about secondary issues. So therefore, over the course of time, veteran believers, we can get sucked into this thing of 
trying to get people to follow us instead of Jesus. And so we glorify ourselves instead of Jesus. You got to feel that, that it's so dangerous when the secondary issue starts driving the way you make a disciple. Man, I'm guilty of this different seasons of my life, and I'm afraid, I hope not, but I, I wonder if I've ruined some folks by being so desperate to get them right on a secondary issue. What's a secondary issue? What are you talking about? I'll give you a couple examples. I'm going to show off my vocabulary just for a second. My wife's in the room. We got to show her so we can know a couple. So your eschatology, right? Everybody's like, one little girl afterward, last service, she's like, could you like give a little bit more definition? Those are nice big words, but what do they mean? Well, that's, that's like the doctrine of the end times or the doctrine of when Jesus is coming back. We call that eschatology. I, like, there's a reason for it, but eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. And what often happens, you see it right now with the stuff going on in Israel, people get so excited, right, about eschatology. I grew up in a church that was really excited about eschatology. We had this big old thing on the back wall of the church. And if you'd never been to our church, it would scare you right out the door, right? Like there's this crazy lion on it, and it's got like all these lines and the rapture, and it's got the verses on it. And like, like you come in like, who are these crazy people? Like, they love Jesus. I love them. I'm thankful for what they did for me. But that was like front and center for us. It's, it's dangerous when a secondary issue becomes the primary thing you're talked about. So the next thing you know, we got bumper stickers, like with arrows on it, with the cross and like a, a rapture and like Jesus coming back down. Like we're proud of this weird little thing on our bumper sticker. <laughs> like that's how we define ourselves by our eschatology of all things, which last I checked, Jesus said we weren't going to be able to tell when he was going to come back. But for some reason, we're kind of proud that we know when he's going to come back. And a bunch of us never say, come Lord Jesus. Because we're not excited that he is coming back. We don't want to actually embrace the living Savior. We want to be right about when he's coming back. I'll throw you another one. Soteriology. Or how you get saved. I would try to spell soteriology for you, but that would, that would be tough. Like I said, it's how you get saved. Got any Calvinists in the room? Oh, don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. I'm about to make fun of you, right? A lot of times, if you're, if you're a Calvinist, and there's a variety of views, because Arminians would never raise their hands, but if you're a Calvinist in the room, if you, and you've spent a bunch of time in it, you could tell me what tulip means, and for some of y'all, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, that's all right, you don't need to know, because the L don't make any sense to me either, right? Like, they'll go through tulip, I'm like, man, there ain't no verses on the L, but, but like, it becomes the thing, and it, uh, in a really weird way, can steal from your ability to worship the living God because you're so convinced that you got you figured out how he saved you. On the flip side, you could take either of those things and land in this spot, studying eschatology. Like There's nothing wrong with understanding these things, and it could promote in you this excitement about the return of Christ. You could study soteriology about how you're saved and you can be convinced that Calvin was right, which is great, as long as that puts God high and not you high. As long as that puts God high and not your friends that love Jesus down. Uh, just to show off one more, how about ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is the study of the church. It's, it's, it's the doctrines of the church. And what is crazy is, is uh, 
how excited we get about our form. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of a house church. They have these churches and houses, and those folks get really excited about how they meet. And you got mega churches. They got thousands of people in a building like this, and they're really excited. We're in between. There's lots of in between. And generally, you think whatever you're doing is the best. And it's weird how you kind of get sucked into the practices of, of some sort of form. I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if somebody starts telling me some form is going to change the world, I immediately check out. I've tried all of them. Last, last I checked, people still got to change. And any of those forms can be, be uh, useful in seeing folks change. We got these traditions that are connected to our forms. I saw the Wells come in. I did their wedding a long time ago. Girls, you're going to have to hear this. We're going public with it. I did their wedding, and I was young. Y'all were younger. Then I, I was 27, 6, somewhere in there, and we were in the church. I don't remember which church it was, but they had a, you remember this, Matt? There's a Bible on the stage? And they had the Bible on something like this. It was a big old Bible. It was like that tall. And, and we were going to do the wedding, and I didn't like where the Bible was. It seemed like it was in the way of what we were going to do, so I did this. I moved it over here. And, and the wedding director, like, came out of her skin. Like, I, I, I didn't know what I did. Evidently, that Bible had never been moved, and I moved it. <laughs> like it's a, well, then screw it to the floor, for goodness sakes. Like, 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 it's just this thing that they committed to, and there's nothing wrong with that Bible being there. There's nothing wrong with that representation. It just, like, it ain't going to break nothing if you move it. It, it, it. The church I grew up to, you want to be scared. You go to the church I grew up to, and you see the, the lion on the wall, and then they'd run open mic service. That's their form. So, like, different people stand up, and they speak from this. really cool if the people, it can be weird, it can be cool. People are standing up and speaking from the word about God, but for them, that is central to what they do. And the scary part is that eventually, the first thing we want to teach somebody that we're trying to disciple or get to follow Jesus is our secondary issue. We're so proud that people speak on the open mic that that becomes the most important thing, or this Bible on this stand becomes the most important thing. It's really confusing to the folks in our room right now. They're just trying to figure out who Jesus is. In some weird way, we become seduced by the new. Generationally, the younger folks in the room, you know this even better. We're always seduced by some new podcast, new book, new author, new speaker, but it just seems like not many Christians in our culture have a new song in their heart, which doesn't really take learning anything new. It takes celebrating what you already know. So now I'm excited about the return of Jesus. I'm shocked that he saved me, right? It's amazing that he coordinated this thing called the church and that we would want to get together weekly and beyond just because we're in love with Jesus. We, we lose our way and we become about the issue or some new teaching on the issue instead of having this new song that rises up and is so attractive and everybody wants to know us because of that new song. Paul's like the, his young son in Christ, Timothy, bro, we got so much work to do. Don't be arguing about words. And then he says this, Verse 16, I'll read it again. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer. Original language would have said gangrene, but it's definitely a medical uh, issue where it's spreading throughout your body and kill you. And he names names, which is a little scary. He says, 
as is in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He, it could have been Bill and George. Might as well have been. These just names back in the day. And, and Timothy knows who Bill and George is. And Paul's like, you remember Bill and George? He talked about Bill, Hymenaeus, and another passage of the Bible where they have gone a different direction, and they're actually going to challenge a core or a primary, not a secondary, a primary doctrine of the Bible. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. So in the first part, you can argue about words and ruin some folks. In the second part, he's saying, now, there's these primary issues, and if you don't know what they are, you could go down a road and deny the resurrection and turn some people away from the faith. So let me talk to the folks in the room like you're a new believer. You've been a believer the last five years. You've known Jesus for a long time. You just don't know the Bible yet. And you're hearing this. You're like, I want to learn how to cut straight. You need to get somebody to help you learn how to cut straight. I think if Paul were writing this to us in the United States of America, 2023, he probably addressed some other issues. And maybe he'd name names. I'm not willing to name names. But there are folks teaching all of these things in the name of Jesus. Like in this case, these folks are arguing against the physical resurrection of the body because of some stuff that's going on in their culture that would say that the body's evil and it would never be resurrected. And in our culture, we got these other gospels being presented. We got the prosperity gospel. We got this sexual gospel, if you will. It's a revolution. It's a gospel. We got the age-old legal gospel. It's all about the rules. And we got what we call the social gospel. And really what they all do is they misdefine God for who he is. Remember our story of the three guys and the last guy, he buried his stuff because he didn't understand who God was. The prosperity gospel, they think that God is a sugar daddy. Like you just ask him for what you want. He's transactional. You give 100 bucks, he'll give you 1,000. What's so sad about that inside the church is that Guys like me can manipulate that way. Like, you give here, God's going to give you a thousand bucks. But man, that is so contrary to scripture. It's shocking. So, you got to know it if you're a new believer. You need somebody to teach you so you could smell the prosperity gospel. Somebody could tell you if that preacher or that lady, if that, they're teaching the prosperity gospel. Because that's just not true. Because you have to deny all these passages in the Bible about suffering. Matter of fact, this whole book, 2 Timothy, he's getting Timothy ready for suffering. You go talk to somebody in China that knows Jesus right now, they're like, what are you talking about if you present the prosperity gospel? Because they're suffering for their faith. Now, there's this temptation back to uh, the veteran believers to swing the pendulum because of the prosperity gospel and act like your generosity is not connected to anything. Well, the Bible has some connections between your generosity and how the Lord cares for you. Like, it actually does connect them. It just doesn't say if you give 100, it's going to be 1,000. Like, it's not necessarily in kind, but he does connect his generosity to your generosity. So it's just, it gets a little delicate on these subjects. What about the sexual gospel? We just spent a whole series on it. The sexual gospel, they, they view God as a yes man. He's passive. He'll do whatever you want him to do, though there's incredible clarity on sexuality in the Bible. We just did a series uh, and read a book called Holy Sexuality by Christopher Yuan, and it, 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 helps us, it, it helps us see the clarity of the scriptures on sexuality, even though there's this, there's this whole new thing being pressed that disagrees with the clarity of the scripture. And, and so for some of us, we react, we get so frustrated with that push that we get angry, and we, 
we, we lose our tone. So I would just say, don't swing the pendulum and just think you can be angry. Like you still do it like Jesus does it. Jesus dealt with people in sexual sin all the time. He addressed it clearly, but it did it in the right tone. The legal gospel, uh, legalism, they view God as a taskmaster, which is certainly disappointing. They view him as this taskmaster that's watching you and waiting to tell you what you did wrong, tell you what not to do. Our relationship with God is strictly judgment. And yet the scriptures, there's this book in the Bible, it's called Galatians. Have they read that book? It's actually, it's, it's this amazing writing from the same guy, Paul, to a church that are struggling with the legal gospel, and he's putting it on. He teaches them about grace, and yet he doesn't allow the pendulum to swing past grace. Like, we're, God is full of grace, but he's also holy, and he can hold those in tension. And that's, those of y'all that are new believers, you need somebody around you. Help, get them to help you understand that, because the legalists will come along, and they'll make you feel terrible for something that you didn't do. But then the social gospel. I love this because the social gospel and the legalist are the same guy or lady. Right? One of them is telling you what you don't do and the other one's telling you what you do do. It always feels weird when you say do do, doesn't it? But anyway, like, <laughs> like the social gospel guy is telling you, hey, you got to love everybody. And like all these things that you do, if you do these things, guess what? The taskmaster, he's watching. He's watching to see if you do it. If you don't do it, he's going to be on you. It's the same story. It's just the other side of the coin. It removes this joy out of this relationship that we have with a God that we know approves of us, even though he does not expect, ex uh, uh, does not expect perfection. This joy of looking forward to seeing him again, of investing and in failing at times, investing and in winning at times, like it steals all that. And all of a sudden, we're only viewing God as a judge. We're only viewing God as this passive God who doesn't really care what I do. What kind of love could come from somebody who doesn't even care? We're only viewing God as a sugar daddy who we call when we're in trouble. Paul's telling Timothy, hey, on the one hand, on the secondary issues, let's stop fighting over all the words. We got too much work to do. On the other hand, like on the primary issues, Know what you're doing. We've got to reproduce the right things in the next generation in order for it to multiply. And then he tells Timothy how. I don't have a whole lot of time to share with you how, so you can read some of this on your own. I want to read through it and just make comments quickly as we go through. Because as you think of meeting a God who you want to be approved by, like after year, years and years of working hard, Probably ought to know what he says. Verse 19, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with the inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. So he, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's grabbing from this story. It's a crazy story in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers uh, chapter 16 actually captures this story of an interaction between Moses and a guy named Korah, and God divides them and shows which one's true. And if you want to, like, if you, you want to, Read it, it's tough, because Korah and his whole family and all those folks that are following Korah and are rebelling against Moses and God, they're sucked into the earth. I, I want to see that on replay. I don't really want to see Korah's face, but, like, how did it happen? Was it an earthquake? How did it go down? But like, God and his sovereignty drops the hammer. <laughs> and Paul says to Timothy, hey, 
Rest in God's sovereignty. God knows what he's doing. You follow his truths. God can handle his business. You rest in that. It's not as much about the harshness of that moment as it is about resting in God's sovereignty. Verse 20 and 21 says, In a wealthy home, some have utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wooden clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the masters to use you for every good work. I mean, he's basically going paper plates and fine china. Which one are you? Like fine china, put your hot dog and your baked beans on it, and it's ruined, right? Like we throw it away. It's, it's done. And you fine china, we don't put hot dogs and, and pork and beans on, uh, depending on the house. Like, like, like it, it's washed and it's cleaned and it's reused and it's reused and it's reused. And he's, he's just saying, hey, stay clean. He's holding up God's holiness. And he's saying, Timothy, you want to be used by God? He wants to use you. He wants to use you to feed his people. Stay clean. Oh, the verses go on. And I'll read them quickly. Run from everything that stimulates useful lust. Underline run. I got to run from it. If you, your phone's owning you right now and porn has got you, you got to talk to somebody. Run from it. Let's put something on your phone. Let's block it. He says, then in a positive way, instead pursue righteous living, make right decisions, faithfulness. Some of y'all are here another Sunday. Praise the Lord. Like you're just being faithful. During COVID, uh, Russell and I would stand by the bread and juice. Jesus said to do this in remembrance. I'm like, we, we did it again. There's, there's 40 of us in the parking lot, but we did it again. We were faithful. We still doing this. Then he tells us, tells us to love. God, when he describes us as a church, says that we're to love each other, and the world will know him by our love for one another. And then he brings in this word peace, which is a great word for us to have walking into the Thanksgiving holidays, isn't it? little peace, even with all the chaos that's about to come. And then this verse, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. I'm, I'm rushing, but hey, like if you've never had some friends that really call on the Lord, you ain't lived yet. I guess the best, to walk with people who really call on the Lord and be in community with folks that really call on the Lord. There's some more verses I don't have time. They're practical. Read 23 to 26 if you can on your own. Like, he just walking Timothy through. Like, this is how you live this life, making the next disciple by being strong and working hard for the approval of the living God. I don't know if I told you well enough, but when I was standing in that driveway and that Penske truck was completely unloaded and my son's I don't remember what Mariah did that whole time. Like, I'm not sure she helped. But anyways, my sons had unloaded that truck. It was just this moment of utter joy. I was so proud. That was my position. It was, it was their work. They had worked hard. I worked with them, but it was just this moment of just utter joy. Like, like this is right. It felt right. And, they, and it, for the whole family, it was like this celebration of who we are. That's what this is. That's what this is. Like, some of us this morning are going to come up and take bread and juice. And, and I hope that you, these last seven days where you've walked with the Lord and you've got stories. I just heard a couple stories of folks sharing the gospel with the name. Come up and, and meet the Savior and know how he feels about it because you know him. Like, he's approved. 
And for some of you, this has been a crash and burn week, and you wouldn't want me to know what you said on the way in this morning. Well, then confess. Like, say you're sorry, because you know him. You know how he works. You know he forgives sins. You know he'll meet you. So confess, like, put it on the table. Show him what you got, and come up and meet him. And you know he'll meet you anyway. As a matter of fact, when you think about approval, it's such a strange word to use in church because we know that none of us qualify to have a relationship with the living God. And yet that blood and that body broken that we remember every week qualifies us. And so every time I want to come take that, I'm approved because of that sacrifice. He made me approved by his death on the cross. I'm always welcome in God's presence. And yet because of that sacrifice, because of that hard work of the living God on my behalf, it makes me want to work hard. I want to be like him. Let's worship him for that. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful for your heart. It makes us a little nervous just to even use that phrase because you know us, Lord. We'll start trying to win or something as opposed to allowing you to work through us. Some of us will get real guilty if we use it wrong and we'll feel less than this morning. Meet each of us in our spot in the room. Meet, meet the one that feels so far from you and remind them that you did all the work on the cross. You finished it. And for the ones that have followed you well in the last little bit, Lord, just, just I love as they sing these songs and they come up and take bread and juice for you to meet them, for just to give them a little taste of what it's going to be like for you to say, well done, that good and faithful servant. Just give them a little taste of what it's going to be like to finally see you and, and see beyond anything we've ever seen here and hear beyond anything we've ever heard here, beyond anything we've ever imagined when we get your approval in the end. Help us taste it. Listen to us as we sing. We love you.